Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Sally Earthroll is an explorer, scientist and educator. She's currently the Head of Geography and Assistant Head leading on sustainability and EDI at a school in Surrey but she hasn't always been in the classroom, or even based in the UK. When teaching in Indonesia, she was confronted by a global problem, plastic pollution. This propelled Sally to act with the school and local community, before taking the opportunity to set sail with X Expedition across the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. X Expedition organises all-female sailing voyages to promote diversity in sailing and science. The organisation works with local communities to act through scientific research and storytelling. This summer, she ventured to Svalbard with the Barber Boat, an organisation with a similar purpose to X Expedition, to act as a scientific research and storytelling platform. This time, the focus was on plastic pollution, whales and climate change. Sally joins us today to report back on what she found while sailing the cold Arctic waters and will tell us what needs to be done, and by when, in order to save our seas. Thanks for joining us today, Sally. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Sally, X-Expedition offers a, a particular type of adventure. Could you explain in more detail what the organisation actually does? Yes, of course. Well, I think the biggest thing about X-Expedition that um, really resonates with me is that it's adventure with purpose. I've always been a bit of an adventure at heart, but actually it really gives meaning to what you're out there doing. So running it as an all-female sailing voyage to start off with obviously promotes women in ocean careers and ocean science, of which there is a big underrepresentation in marine employment. But carrying out that scientific research into plastic pollution when you're out at sea, sometimes in some of the most remote places on earth, um, really provides a valuable information and resources to be able to not only tell the story about what's actually going on and where our plastic waste goes to, but it allows us to understand more about the plastic pollution problem. And by understanding more about the problem, it's not only a good way to promote people to take action, but it informs us on what the best actions are to be able to really have an impact. And a lot of your action and awareness stems from your work in Indonesia. Could you give us a little bit more detail about where you were and what you saw? When I landed a job teaching in Bali in Indonesia, I think all of my teacher friends turned around to me and as I'm sure you can imagine, we're like, that's not a, a career choice, that's a lifestyle choice. You know, imagining me on these beautiful beaches and as a geographer, it's obviously a bit of a geographer's paradise. There are volcanoes, there are coral reefs, you've got rainforests, you've got a diverse population. And I was really excited about being able to teach geography out there and it it was just a phenomenal experience. But it helped me to understand, I guess, a problem. And it, it wasn't what I was expecting to see. I was maybe naively expecting this Paradise Island experience. But I was confronted with plastic strewn all over the beaches, in the rivers, going down towards where the sand was, and along all the street corners. And particularly when the rains came, it would pick up all of the pollution and, and, you know, take it down out and straight out into the seas. And it really highlighted what's 
kind of going on in our wider world and educated me being able to see it firsthand in the fact that, you know, you've got this plastic pollution. We all use plastic products. It's it's a phenomenal material. It's durable. It's versatile. Yet the fact it's designed to last forever is challenging because it's often used for products which are used for you know, one a one-time use, single-use plastic, and then get thrown away. And we've never really thought about how we manage the afterlife of the plastic product. And so it's out in our environment, it's permeating it everywhere. And the island nation, if you like, allowed me to see on a on a micro scale what's going on in the in the real world. Although we are you know, we might recycle things in the UK for years. We've been shipping that recycling and plastic waste overseas, not managing it ourselves. And the plastic waste stream becomes quite confused and difficult to track. So it becomes quite a um, kind of very interdependent problem with lots of different factors that are difficult to trace. Um, great for geographical thinking, but obviously something which we do need to look at tackling it not just out at sea where I've been researching where it ends up, but back on land where our actions and the actions of some of the larger organisations and, and governments can really make a difference. So by day and through the term, you're a geography teacher. And then in your holidays, you are on expedition. Uh, this autumn, you went on an expedition into the Arctic. You set sail from Longyearbyen uh, in Svalbard and chartered a course south um, along the Norwegian fjords. What was the purpose of that particular trip and what was accomplished then? I was with an organisation called Barber Boat and it was still very much summer in the high Arctic with 24 hours of daylight. And... Similar to X Expedition, we were a storytelling and scientific research platform. So run by Andreas, we were our main purpose was they they went out in 2021 um, and they did an expedition called Arctic Sense. And they were carrying out some research, capturing content about this amazing landscape in the Arctic the ecosystems, the whales in particular, which are just phenomenal creatures, and obviously the fragility, particularly as we look at a changing climate, we know that the polar regions are particularly vulnerable um, to that change. And so our purpose going out this time was to continue with capturing the content. There was some new um, equipment to be tested looking forward into the future and how we can capture more inspiring content to try and enact change and to give people hope about this amazing region as well. They did a great project in 2021 with the University of Iceland where they used virtual reality and 360 degree like content capture. So wearing the VR goggles, and I have to admit it was the first time I'd ever worn VR goggles. It was an amazing experience to kind of be swimming with the whales because they have an underwater kind of scooter and, 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 and free divers on board and things. But equally being able to be on board, sailing, flying over the ice, various different things. And I, I was blown away by how that Obviously, it's difficult to roll out in the classroom um, because not everyone has a set of VR equipment in their schools. But it was really amazing to create that sense of place and that importance of that place that, you know, that stimulus, that inspiration to really care about somewhere in an environment that, to be honest, is quite alien to ones that most of human population live in was really phenomenal. And so, capturing more of that content and, and for me personally, 
as a geographer going to the Arctic, sailing to the Arctic, where you're not with anyone else, you're just with the people on board, was just amazing. Um, being able to see the various pods of whales, there was when we arrived, we had just about finished our safety briefing before we set out um, quite quickly because a pod of beluga whales had been spotted out in the fjord and so we we set out and we followed them and we were out for obviously we were out for hours it's daylight so you don't realize that it becomes midnight and two o'clock in the morning particularly with all of these these whales was just amazing and particularly because they're you know mostly concentrated within the arctic and subarctic waters it was amazing to be able to see that and for me to be able to on the back of that capture content and think about how if we don't have VR equipment, how we can emulate that in the classroom was really quite phenomenal. And you captured specifically the the chatter between the beluga whales? I think I actually cried on board a couple of times, actually, because it was just so amazing. But um, seeing the beluga whales, and there are about 100 of them in this pod. So there was a there was a lot of beluga whales. And yeah, I was sat just like I am now with headphones on. And we had a hydrophone that we dropped into the water. And being able to see these amazing specimens and having the hydrophone in the water and being able to hear their chatter. And it's like canaries talking, chirping away was just, you know, bringing it to life in a real sensory experience. And I think we've got a clip that we can listen to now. Returning to plastic pollution, uh, the situation with plastic seems to be worsening. As you said, it's, it's an amazing material that, that is durable, but lasts forever, pretty much. How do you stay positive and what have you changed in your personal life to limit your own plastic waste? How do I stay positive? Well, sometimes it can just seem an insurmountable problem because particularly when you take a trawl through the water. So even in the Arctic waters when we've taken a trawl through, but particularly in the, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch in the Pacific Ocean, you're taking this, it's 60 centimetres across the mantatrol and it's got a fine net mesh net at the end of it and you take it across for one nautical mile and in that one nautical mile we were picking up hundreds of pieces of microplastic, all of different polymer types, all from different items used differently back on land and we were trying to like determine what the plastic polymer type was so we could see what it was most likely used for in terms of the products back on land so we could look at the ways in which those products could be managed in their afterlife so to speak when they've been used and thrown away Um, and we were combining that with ocean circulation data so we could kind of estimate where they were coming from um, in different places around the world or to try and feed into solutions and you know what's really great about XX expedition is it's very solutions focused so you do have that scientific data to support those solutions and advise the best fit solutions for different places Um, but I think surrounding yourself by people that have a positive 
outlook and a can-do attitude is one thing personally that I find really motivating. And, you know, knowing that actually there are things you can do. We actually created as a kind of an offshoot of X Expedition, the shift platform. And you can you can go on and you can like click type in different things and it gives you a plethora of solutions and with the understanding that actually it's taken lots of micro actions for us to get to where we are with our plastic use and actually there's lots of micro actions that will hopefully get us back to a way where we're living more sustainably and um, although it can seem overwhelming that there are so many solutions actually the fact there are so many solutions means that there is something that everybody can do however big or small that fits our individual lifestyles and you know what we can do within our capacity which should be heartening that we can all take action in in different ways and at different scales Exactly. And it depends where you live in the world. It depends what waste management facilities you have within the country that you live in. It depends what finances and socioeconomic background you're from as to what actions are available to you. And I think the fact that there are so many different things we can do, as you say, there's something for absolutely everyone. And I know that in my position, the question I ask myself is, do I really need it? And if I still feel I really need it kind of, you know, a little while down the line, I get rid of that impulse buying and I start to make more sustainable decisions, I guess, about the way I live my life. It's great for my wallet. So it's, you know, particularly with the cost of living um, at the moment, that's, you know, a mindset that's helped me to kind of navigate my way through that. But equally, it's it's something that actually it helps the planet beyond my little life. <laughs> um, on all your Arctic trips, what effects have you observed from climate change? If anyone goes onto the internet and looks up Arctic sea ice changes over time and sees those amazing animations where you can see the extent of sea ice fluctuating between January and July and you know it, it's slowly shrinking in the Arctic, we all know that the Arctic ice isn't only shrinking in its sea space that it covers, but we also know that it's thinning. So we know that there is an impact and that it is, you know, it is relatively likely that we will have an ice-free summer at some point in the future. But I think, you know, particularly when you're thinking about the impacts on ecosystems, we need to consider the fact that it's it's not just climate change that are affecting these ecosystems in these fragile environments. If we think of whales, for example, to add a little bit of hope to the conversation, actually, since a lot of countries have banned whaling, We've seen a bounce back in a lot of populations and you're seeing humpback whales where you wouldn't have seen humpback whales before. You're seeing sperm whale where you haven't seen sperm whales before. And so actually being able to kind of navigate that balance and understand those populations is really, really important. And that's something else that Barber Boat does is liaise with universities and and people that study particular whales, it becomes very specific when you get to university level um, about where they're sighted so that they can start to map and understand the behaviours and potential future behaviour changes with the changing climate. And I guess that um, protection, conservation, the success that you mentioned with, with particular whales like the sperm whale starts with the research that you've done on Barber Boat or with X Expedition. Yeah, I think all of this research, it puts it 
into a scientific context. So it's not just me saying, I really like this creature and I think we should do something about it. It's actually putting it into a a scientific domain so that you know it's backed up with with evidence um even when we were out this summer we weren't collecting any data for specific research papers that are going to be published but we did have an oceanographer on board from the um, Norwegian Meteorological Institute and she had a um CTD which is measures conductivity, temperature and the depth of the water. So we were testing the salinity basically and the temperature in the water column. And the water in the Arctic is, it's very unusual, the water column. It's kind of upside down in terms of its temperature because you've got the cold melting ice. So you're meant to have colder temperatures on the top and warmer temperatures at depth in the Arctic, which is reversed for the majority of the oceans around the world. But with the North Atlantic drift coming up and what's termed, I believe, Atlantification of the Arctic waters. Actually, you've got quite a lot of those warm waters with different salinities coming in and protruding into that water column, changing the makeup of that. And so she was doing some preliminary research into mapping and modelling the circula- ocean circulation in that particular region, which was really, really in- interesting to be part of, particularly when you're at the front of a tidewater glacier measuring the, the temperature of the water column and finding out that it's nine degrees near the surface and you've got a tidewater glacier in front of you that's carving. You know, because everyone knows the freezing point of water, that that, that is going to lead to undercutting and melting of that, of that tidewater glacier. As a geographer and studying glaciology at university, it was amazing to be below deck. I was having a nap because I'd been on on watch overnight and everyone was teasing me, kind of recording, waiting to see my reaction as I came up on deck because I'd been talking about glaciers all the time. But coming up and seeing a glacier into the water with bits of carved glacier or I guess ice icebergs in front of it was just absolutely amazing and being able to get the hydrophone and put it in the water and hear the kind of creaking and the running water of the supraglacial streams and probably the subglacial streams as well off the glacier out into the sea was just phenomenal For me, I think that's one of the most incredible landscapes I've ever sailed into. As lovely as it was to live in the tropics, um, obviously it's a very different environment. And I think it's because it just feels so untouched. You know, in Svalbard, it's so cold. There's permafrost. You don't have any trees because they can't have any roots into the ground um, because of the permafrost. The only vegetation you have in the entire barren landscape is on the cliffs where you've got the summer migration of birds nesting above it and they've done their business down the side of the cliffs and you've got some kind of, you know, nutrients available to grow some mosses and lichen and things like that. And obviously some of the other plants that have adapted to live in that environment. But yeah, it was just an amazing experience to see and being able to look at that glacier, have the ice and, and listen to the creaking of it was just amazing. Looking ahead, um, what do you foresee as decisive moments over the, the coming decades in the fight against both plastic waste that we touched on at the start and, and climate change that we're talking about now? 
I think recognizing that there are lots of different solutions and having some hope is the is the first step, really. I think having the sustainable development goals, I know when I've worked with lots of different countries at different levels, at the NGO level, government level, and with local communities, there kind of seems to be a bit of a language around the sustainable development goals. And I think you know, in my my appreciation of that is that, you know, we've got these goals, but it helps. It's a very complex place, our world, massively interdependent, very holistic in nature. And you've got to have a holistic understanding of it to tackle and, and you know, take on some of these global challenges. And so the sustainable development goals, I guess, break it down into manageable bite-sized chunks. It allows us to understand the indifferent elements that we can then piece together and think about the kind of, I guess it's a bit of synoptic thinking really, between the, the different parts or different elements that play a part. And I think having a goal of reducing our carbon emissions by 45% by 2030 is brilliant. It is a goal. And I think, you know, we've all seen on the news how it's become very politicised and I'm I'm excited. Um, we're just coming up to kind of COP28. And so, you know, things in the news about climate change and targets and financing some of these um, carbon reduction and mitigation targets is very much part of the conversation. And I think every time we have a, a conference of parties, something else happens. Another agreement is made um, and we're starting to look at financing for that. I wouldn't say that the speed of agreeing between the international, it's an intergovernmental organisation and so it's very difficult to agree those international agreements and, and hold everybody to account. But I do think it's good to at least have that in place so that we're all starting to speak the same language. And we know that from research on behaviour change, it takes, I think on average, somebody hears something seven times before they take action. And I mean, we've had more than seven conferences of parties, but I do think that, um, you know, it does give us something to hold on to, that we've got action coming from below. And I can understand why there's a lot of emotive conversation around this from people that feel like nothing's being done. And it can make people feel anxious about what's happening in the world. But equally, I feel that, you know, it does give us something to hold on to and work towards, whether we are a government official, whether we are working for a petrochemical firm, whether we are in a school trying to encourage and educate our students about um, sustainable development. That leads me neatly uh, onto my last question, Sally. Um, what advice would you give teachers and students who want to use their geography to study and reduce plastic waste, either close to home or further afield? Particularly with plastic waste, have a look at which universities have specialist departments around plastic pollution and, you know, start to think about what kind of GCSEs you might take, what A-levels you might take that might line you up for a career in that particular area. Equally, I think starting to um, develop your awareness of the industry because there's so many different roles. You don't have to go and work and be a researcher at a university. You could work in a non-governmental organisation. You could use your skill set to work with communities on affecting change. And there's lots of careers that probably haven't even been developed yet that, um, you know, have that 
crossover between science and outreach, depending on your own skill set. At X Expedition, we talk about everyone having their own superpower, so their own experience and expertise that they can use to make a difference in whatever their context. And so it's thinking about what you're good at, getting yourself some experience. You know, that might be volunteering. It might be going out and um, collecting litter. It might equally be not just collecting that litter, but starting to use it on some of our, there's a lot of citizen science apps that we can use, such as the marine debris tracker that you can go on and you can log on and you can share the data. And that gets used by the University of Georgia to look at this plastic pollution problem around the world. So you can contribute just by picking up litter and logging it. You can contribute to scientific research as well. So I think there's loads that people can do. Obviously, working in a school myself, I appreciate that, you know, I think schools are some they can be incredibly sustainable but equally there can be a lot of waste in schools I think if we're really really honest and um, obviously working in the UK the government wants every school to have a sustainability lead by 2025 and so starting that process and if you're at school looking into joining the eco club if there isn't an eco club starting one through your student council making sure you've got things like the right waste bins, but also thinking about the waste stream once the waste leaves the school is a really good place to start because the more you understand the issue and the challenges that it's faced, the more you appreciate where you might have the biggest impact to affect change. This podcast has been so full of hope. Um, Thank you for joining us today, Sally, and for sharing your story with us. You're most welcome. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.